Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deadhead Cannabis Show. My name is Larry Mishkin of the Hoban Law Group, and uh, we got a great show for you today. We're very excited. Among other things, we're, uh, for the first time, experimenting uh, with simulcasting through uh, the Clubhouse app, and uh, hopefully that goes well for us, too. Uh, joining me today is my co-host, uh, Rob Hunt of Lene Holdings. Rob, how you doing? I'm great today, Larry. How you doing? Well, we're doing a lot better here in Chicago. It's 50 degrees, which means it's finally starting to warm up. But of course, now my backyard has turned into a giant lake because when two feet of snow melts all of a sudden, it doesn't have anywhere to go. But that's a problem for another day. Otherwise, uh, it's sunny and beautiful and uh, very, very happy about that and uh, ready for another show. Tell us what we have on tap today, Rob. Well, we should have a good show. We're uh, going to cover a couple things. You know, one's going to be the uh, the influence that Vince Wellnick had on the Grateful Dead in the later years, from 1990 until 1995. And then the other thing I think we're going to touch on is we're you know looking at a pretty big anniversary of the Fillmore West from 1969, where they played a pretty fun four night run that I know Larry, you know really well. So between those two um, two things on the Grateful Dead side, we've got a lot to cover. And then on top of that, I think we're going to talk about a couple of big news that have happened in the cannabis industry, including the legalization in New Jersey, as well as, you know, other states that are looking at changing their programs here pretty soon, including both uh, South Carolina and uh, North Dakota have both been in the news in the last couple of days about how they're thinking about, you know, moving their programs forward. So we've got a lot of news in the cannabis industry, and we've got a lot of fun stuff to discover uh, on the Grateful Dead side. And we are really lucky to be joined by another Westchester guy today. We seem to be having a lot of Westchester guests on, in, uh, in Greg Corner, who has um, been involved in many iterations of different bands that you know have a nexus to the Grateful Dead, as well as being um, you know directly related to Vince Wellnick musically. So, Greg, welcome to the show, and thanks for coming on and spending some time with us today. Thank you for having me, Robert. So. Um, before we get into the canvas side, maybe we'll just jump right into the Grateful Dead side. And, you know, why don't you give us a sense? You and I have a lot of friends in common. We've, we've never met. We are introduced through mutual friends. Give us a sense of kind of, you know, how you uh, found your way into the Grateful Dead community and how you ended up playing music around Westchester and, you know, now I guess even still today through Pete Shapiro's venues and all the rest of that fun stuff. Sure, yeah. Um, yeah, well, I grew up in Westchester and I said you were mentioning that bar, the four and aft in, in Lake Payne, you know, and that's where I first started playing music, I don't know, I was like 13 or 14 years old, I started playing gigs there. And they had, a, you know, every Tuesday night, they had a, a Grateful Dead night. So my band Crimson Rose played there for many years. Played in dead bands, you know, all through, you know, my teenage years in college and, and long after that. But then I'd kind of given it up. But then I got a call uh, in a, around like 2000, 2001, the Dark Shore Orchestra was looking for a music player. So I did that gig for a little while. And then through that, I met Vance Wilnick. And then started playing with him after after a Darkstar Orchestra, and then played with him, you know, right up until he died. That's where I guess was probably when did this pass away? Actually, I'm thinking six, seven years. Two thousand and six, I think. Yeah, so it was only about six years. But um, yeah, so that's how I that's how I fit into the whole Grateful Dead thing and how I met Vince and we just started playing together, uh, you know, kind of one-off gigs, and you know, just loved his company, loved playing with him, and so. The height, I think we were doing almost like 100 shows a year. That's amazing. Um, Greg, we've all got some great questions for you, but just really quickly, uh, I want our listeners uh, uh, to note that uh, my other co-host, Jim Marty of Bridge West, has joined us. Uh, Jim, how are you doing today? Very good. Just had a little computer trouble. Well, we all do from time to time. We're glad you made it on the show. Uh, we've begun our conversation with Greg Corner 
uh, and he's uh, des describing for us his musical background that ultimately led him to a, uh, well, it sounds like a relatively close relationship with Vince Welnick in terms of uh, of playing. So so you actually were touring with, with Vince's band after he left, the, well, after the dead disbanded? Yeah, I mean, the, 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 with Vince, you know, I mean, he kind of had some rough times after, you know, he left the dead. And, you know, he had a great band called the Missing Man Formation after the Grateful Dead with them. Um, yeah. Very Francis band. Steve Kimhoff was in that band. So, really probably, I think my, the, they made that one record was probably the best record by any member of the dead after, you know, after Jerry died. But, um, you know, it was very difficult for him to keep the, that band of that caliber together. And he wasn't able to. And so by the time I met him, he was kind of playing gigs with a lot of different bands all over the place. We became kind of his band on the East, the East Coast. But then we, you know, we traveled a bit and went to Colorado. But mostly we were just doing gigs up and down the you know, East Coast with him. Huge pothead. And, and, and a grower, too. Oh, Vince was, huh? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah, had so many great memories of, of being with him. So that's a bit, so like when you guys would be on tour and you'd be sitting around late at night, would he like just, you know, open up and tell you all these great stories about Jerry Garcia and Phil Lesh and those guys? Oh, yeah. You know, you loved, loved uh, Jerry, but you can see all the other guys in the dead. And uh, yeah, just told great story. And all, not even the dead, he was in the tubes, you know, for right. the majority of his career, for many decades. Right. So yeah, yeah, just great. He had a real amazing life, you know, it was unfortunately cut short a little bit. Um, you know, right, you know, hit one of the first hippies, we got to Hyde Ashbury, you know, I think in like 1968. You had a band called The Beans, I think, that went from Arizona, they went there. And then that, I, at some point, I grew into the tubes. So he was a founding member of the tubes for around 20 to 30 years. Right, and, but then we tell stories about his experiences with the Grateful Dead, which obviously were very compelling to me. Very straight from the horse's mouth, as it were. Yep, I'm a little older than these guys, uh, and I got to uh, see the tubes mostly on television. They did some late night television back oh, yeah. in the uh, mid '70s. Uh, what do you want from life? Was a is a great song. Great song. One of our good friends is. To this day, he's blonde and gray now, but uh, his nickname is White Punk. Yeah, we would we would cover White Punks on dope. Yeah, that's all. I think he, he most of his career was with the two. I mean, that, that was his band. And then you know, I think he toured and recorded with Todd Rundgren for a number of years. And then he was kind of, you know, I think kind of on hard times when he, when he you know got and he did great. So how? So what does he say? One day he's just hanging out and he gets a phone call from Garcia that says, "You want to be my keyboard player?" No, what no. What happened is uh, his wife. You know, she also worked for the Tubes. I think she was a costume designer for the Tubes. And she knew the secretary, one of the secretaries for oh. that production. And she got got him an audition. I think it was T. Lavitz from uh, the Dregs, one of the finalists. But they, they had a bunch of guys who they auditioned. And I think Vince was, like, living in his garage. He, he, had, he had a nice place out in California. He was not doing – he was definitely on hard times financially. And, he, you know, he – when he he got that gig, it was obviously it was a huge life changer, but it was also it was just you know an incredible reversal of fortune for him. So he auditioned, and then yeah, I guess he got the story is I guess he got a call, you know, a few weeks out, and he, he didn't you know, he, I, he was not a deadhead, even though he was a hippie, he was not a deadhead, and he didn't really know their music that well. I don't think you know when he when he uh, got the opportunity to audition, um, but then once he you know got the audition, he met Jerry and Weir. You know, when he realized what he was getting into, he was like, oh, my God, you know, this is the gig of what I've always dreamed of. And he actually would talk about that when he was a kid. He would dream and visualize, you know, this gig. That's wild. Yeah. So, then, so he got a call from uh, Cameron Spears, I guess, the uh, manager. Is your life insurance all paid up? <laughs> he got the gig. And then I think right after that, he got a call from Garcia. He was like, hey, man, come on by and get some money. 
And that was him. He was making, and he was cut in like an even partner of the Grateful Dead. He wasn't like a hired hand. He was just making the same amount of money from the touring as I think Jerry. So it was a huge. That's amazing. Yes, I uh, I told that story. Uh, Big Steve tells that uh, he got his gig check, and he looked at it and he said, "Is this for the whole tour?" They go, yeah. no, man, that was just one show. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that, that's pretty amazing stuff, you know. And sure, I'm, you know, I'm sure for many musicians, that's almost the kind of stuff of dreams, right? You're in the right place at the right time. You get the call, and the next thing you know, you're out there, you know, jamming with one of the greatest jam bands in history. But I have to say, you know, as a guy who, uh, you know, started in the early 80s, so, you know, Brent was my keyboard player. That's that's the only formation of the dead I ever really knew. And we'd dream about and say, boy, if only we could have seen Keith or Pigpen or whatever. And then we made the switch to Vince, you know, and at first it's like, well, who is this guy? You know, and they had, for better or for worse, they had Hornsby playing too. So Hornsby was taking a lot of the attention away from him. But all of a sudden, man, there was Vince on stage. And I got to tell you, he, he was... He was great. And I, I, we were all talking about it the other day. Um, I really fell in love with him in uh, 1992. And I know, Jim, you and I uh, have talked about the Sam Boyd Silver Bowl shows. But, uh, it, you know, they played three shows out there. And at that point, I, I think Hornsby was gone. It was just him. And uh, especially that third night, probably one of you know my top five, certainly top ten shows of all time. They did an Addicts of My Life that night. Um, a, a great morning dew, a, a really solid first set, uh, great scarlet fire. Um, they hit all the great tunes. And then at the end, it was my first time seeing uh, the Vince Welnick inspired uh, double encore of Baba O'Reilly into Tomorrow Never Knows, which, you know, made me fall in love with Revolver all over again. So I was just like the happiest guy in the world. And I, from that point on, I was like, this is great. He's, you know, he fit right in. He was part of the team. Yep, so I was at those shows. They were wonderful. I remember the th there was a big, tall post with a thermometer on top of it behind Jerry. Like at midnight, it said 100 degrees. Yeah, it was it was warm. Definitely warm out in the desert in Las Vegas. No doubt about it. But, uh, but yeah, from that moment on. And then what I found is people would come to me and say, you saw Brent play in concert? Wow, that's so cool. And I was like... I love Brent. He was my guy, but you know, this is my guy now, you know, it's, it's next man up and, and Vince stepped up and, and I give him total credit for stepping into a tough situation. And as far as I could tell, blended in pretty seamlessly. Rob, what are your thoughts? You know, it's really funny. I had a, a conversation about an hour and a half ago with an old friend who's uh, now the touring manager for Anders Osborne and uh, was, you know, the, uh, the stage manager for the strange cheese incident. And we were talking about the earliest days of Vince, and he and I were both at the first Richfield, Ohio show when Vince first came out and played his first shows. And that show actually was without Hornsby. Hornsby didn't come onto the tour until Philly a few nights later. Mm -hmm. So the first two nights were just Vince solo. And he and I were laughing about it, that when Vince first walked out with just, you know, whatever keyboard he was playing, that compared to the Hammond B3 and the other rig that Brent had, we looked at it, you know, we looking at our friends going, what is this? You know, is this a joke? Is this the, all the guys going to be playing? Is this little tiny, like, kid's keyboard? You know, like, what does he expect to do with that thing? You know, the first night or two, he's still feeling his way, and obviously the rest of that tour helped a lot with Hornsby jumping in, who had spent some time playing with the other members of the band. But um, there's that period of like, all right, is this guy going to cut it? Is he going to be able to make it with just playing, you know, what looked like, you know, a kid's Casio keyboard? You know, so, uh, so we were a little concerned. But for me, when it really took off is that, you know, I, I brought this up recently when we were talking about Eyes of the World from Nassau. And I said, you know, how like the, the sounds that uh, Branford put into the estimated profit were things then that Vince was able to do very similar with his right. keyboard to mimic the sounds that Branford had done in 1990 when Brent was still playing. 
and started putting in really cool funky uh, noises. And this is when the whole band was experimenting a lot more with MIDI. So there's all sorts of like, you know, wind chime noises and, um, and, and brass noises that were coming out of, you know, Phil's bass and coming out of Jerry's guitar. And that, you know, then Vince really started getting into like, what could he do with his keyboard and what sounds could he sample in there? And started getting really cool. So, you know, to your point, like, I might not have been the biggest like Samba in the Rain fan, but I certainly, you know, hit a point where, you know, the influence of Vince was very real, especially in the, in the song choices and the song selection, and especially with like the Beatles influence that he brought to the band. So, Greg, I don't know if you could speak, you know, really quickly as someone that spent as much time with Vince as you did. Was he a huge Beatles fan? Yeah, uh, he was huge. Yeah, huge Beatles fan. But also, one thing I will say, because you said the Casio thing, which used to drive him crazy. And it should be, you know, he said a lot. I've read it elsewhere, but he would say frequently that when he joined Dead, it was not his choice not to have the Hammond sound and a lot of other sounds that he wanted. They wanted to do the MIDI stuff. They had Bob Rayla, you know, program. So... Yeah, that, that wasn't necessarily his. He was a great organ player, but they definitely did not want him to play anymore. That's organ. interesting. So yeah, I thought that was, that was interesting, too. Um, and I think he kind of bought because I let's face it, there's a lot of bad ads you mean that you never get respect from because, you know, he wasn't Brent or whatever. And Brent never got some because he wasn't paying ten, whatever. But, but uh, yeah, he would always bristle about that because he, he, it was not his choice what sounds he was allowed to use, actually. Let me ask you this, Greg. And, you know, far be it from us to ever go anywhere where people don't want us to go. But as deadheads who, you know, were really into it, and like I say, you know, really, really took Vince under our wing, I would, you know, I, I, I never quite heard the whole story, but realized that something wasn't quite right when they came back for that family reunion show in 2002 at Alpine Valley. Uh, you know, and they brought out, well, just about everybody, I think, except maybe Bill didn't show for that, or, or no, Bill was there. I don't, one of them wasn't there, maybe. But but they didn't invite Vince along. Yeah, no, that was a big de- that was a big deal, and it was really sad for Vince. He wasn't I, I you know, I mean, I, Jeff Comenti's a great keyboard player and all of that, but that I, mean, was, that was, I think that was before Jeff even. I think that was, was it. What were, what were his so. thoughts on that? Was that like, did he feel he was bummed out? I mean, I mean, yeah. it's, it's no secret. It's been written about, you know, you had some some issues, and at, you know, after uh, you know Jerry died, he was in serious depression, and um, he tried to off himself on the Rat Dog. He was hired by Rat Dog, and after that, you know, he was. My understanding is pretty much persona non grata um, with the whole Grateful Dead team and the members of the Grateful Dead. I mean, not to put too kind of fine a point on it, but it was really that way. And it was kind of it was very sad. You know, very like, sad. You know, I, I don't know if it, you know how, how Mitch died, man. He committed suicide. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Well, you know, it, it, it stemmed from that. Well, I mean, obviously, he had mental illness. He was deeply hurt. He was not invited to that. And then for the last, whatever, 10 years of his life, he was kind of shut out. Right. That's really, I, I mean, look, I, far, I, I can't get involved right in all those decisions and why people do what they do. But as exactly. a fan, I can say that I, we missed Vince. You know, we, we were really hoping he'd be part of that to capture as much of that sound as, as we last remembered it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, who, who, oh, whoever, whoever they had playing keyboards for them, you know, did a fine job. But um, yeah. I like Jeff. Yeah, well, I mean, it wasn't just Alpine. It was like a sustained thing. And I mean, he was, let's say, when I was right. playing all these gigs with him, we were, you know, we were playing bars. If he could have been playing theaters and arenas again, you know, obviously he would have wanted to be doing that. Did he have a following of deadheads who would come to your shows? We did, but you know, it was, you know, it's definitely small potatoes compared to what right. he had experienced. You know, and, right. And he was. And I'm trying to. He had great times. We about the best days of my life, and he was having a great time too. He wasn't. I mean, it wasn't some, some tragic figure, but he was definitely. It was. It, it bothered him, you know. And I thought it was kind of unnecessary, you know, that, that they didn't, you know. 
they, they could have thrown them, thrown them bone really easily. Not necessarily had about poor or even a period alpine. Just over the years, you know, while I was working with them, it's just like wow, doing all these gigs at these obscure places and these, you know, it'd be nice if, if somebody from the dead would throw a whole many a bone. How old was he when he passed? Fifty-five. I'm gonna say he's my age right now. Fifty-five, but he was old. Fifty-five. That's the other thing. I mean, yeah, those serious health issues where he was that emphysema. You know, he did that. He was depressed, you know, but in addition to it's not addition to it. He was a great man. He had a great life. But, you know, he died the way he did. It was, he just gone off his meds. He had been on his meds, I think, for, you know, ever since he, the incident on the rat dog bus until maybe a couple of months before he passed away. I remember we were playing down in Florida and um, he told me he was off. We talked for many years about him being on his meds and he wanted to get off them. You know, and he finally did. And I, I was like, congratulations. And then a couple of weeks later, he it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy. Yeah, it's a tragedy. But, but like I said, that I mean, and it, you know, for many years, I had a hard time dealing with it. But it's, uh, it wasn't one thing. He, had, he was depressed, but you know, he also was dealing with some serious physical issues, which were making life very difficult for him. Sure. And um, sure. yeah, and I know one of his great pleasures was smoking pot. I know what that was. This is, uh, for the show. Well, that's that's why we're here. Yeah. No, that's. But, but just one other thing, you know, just the way the, the dead are kind of. It's just like when they're. You know, I mean, it's there. They kind of, when they're done with you, they're, they're kind of done with you. It's not, I mean, it's not as advanced. I mean, the other guys I know, they, they, they can use some help, you know? I hear you. I hear you. Well, Jim, you know, this uh, this kind of makes you the old man of the group, not that you weren't already, of course, but you've, you've seen who? You saw Keith, you saw Brent, you saw Vince, you know, you, you've got us on that. So, uh, you know, you're uniquely positioned to bring your uh, perspective to the table on that. Well, I was lucky enough to see not only the um, Bruce Hornsby-Vince duet with the Grateful Dead. Uh, for a number of years in the early 90s, <clears throat> they would come to Denver uh, in between Thanksgiving and Christmas, early December, and, and do some shows. So, yeah, I got to see a lot of Vince shows, Vegas and Denver and... Uh, he was always a, a great addition to the band. Loved it. Um, I believe it was July of 1990 was when um, Brent, Brent Midland passed away. Right. And so Once so again, that's when, so it been 1990 when Vince came into the Grateful Dead. Yeah, I think he really did invigorate the dead as far as the repertoire oh. and his vocal harmonies. And just he got, you know, I know Jerry loved it. We also got a new lease on life. I, mean, I remember after Brent passed, there was a lot of questions of would the band go on, you know, without Brent. I'd only seen 12 Brent shows. I ended up seeing 138 shows or 135 shows with Vinny. So I'm, I'm a true Vinny guy, right? Nice. Uh, and I, I remember being a, an 18-year-old kid getting the news that Brent had passed and thinking like, oh my God, this is over before it even really got started for me. I can't believe I missed it. So, you know, in many ways, like, thank goodness for Vince Welnick, you know, to come in there and, and step it up and get the band excited. Because when they came back out and announced that Fall Tour was still on, like for me, that was like, you know, there's no way they're going to get a person in there and train so fast to learn the entire repertoire in four months. And, you know, Vince came out strong. So, you know, thank goodness for uh, for Vince Wellnick coming in when he did. Yeah, shifting gears a little bit, Greg, I mean, you've, like, a couple things I didn't know about you, which is, you know, your DSO uh, affiliation as well. Talk to me about playing with uh, with John K. Lasik as well. I mean, that, that has to have been really exciting. Oh, yeah, he's amazing. Yeah. He's just yeah, jaw-dropping, just uh, a whole pleasure to play with. Amazing. He's the only person where I've closed my eyes, you know, and at certain shows I've been like, wow, like, you know, I could be at a 1978, you know, uh, dead show in uh, some, you know, mid-sized theater. He's that good sometimes as far as his tone. 
And, and I have to say that at the risk of insulting our listeners who are big fish fans, you know, if we're going to talk about people being excluded, I, I was really disappointed that John wasn't brought in for the 50th anniversary shows because I thought his work with further, I agree, Rob, I saw them a few times and when he was up there playing, uh, he filled those Jerry holes as well as anybody did. He sang all the great tunes. He, you know, he, he really know how to, to do it. I mean, that he'd spent his whole life playing Jerry and he really had it down to a science. And I get that Trey's a big name and, and Trey's a great guitar player. I don't deny that. And, you know, he knows how to play to a large stadium, but boy, I, 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 I'm a big John Catalastic fan and I was sorry he didn't get the chance to, to keep playing with him. Yeah. I really enjoyed dark star orchestra, seen them uh, many times. Um, yeah, I heard yes. Rob Eaton has took a fall and broke his wrist. He can't play his guitar right now. Yeah, I heard I, I read about that as well. Yeah, I think he's going to be okay though. Yeah, it's got some screws in it. Yeah. So let's yeah. ask about that though. Playing with Dark Star Orchestra because now you're not just playing dead. You got to be prepared on any given night to play a 1960s show, a 1990s yeah. show, a 1970s show. How do for, you know? Just remembering the songs, how do you, you know, they love each other. Oops, it's 73. Yeah, when I got that gig, it was, I not, like I said, I had not been playing. The one time in my adult life, I kind of put down my day. I wasn't playing that much. And then through my friend Cotter Michaels, who does, still does sound, I think, for uh, Dark Star. I guess not anymore because of the pandemic. But but he, you know, he's done a lot of really cool cool gigs as a sound engineer. And he, he needed a bass player. And I remember... Uh, Scott, who was the keyboard player and the leader of the band, I got in touch with him and he's like, send us a demo. And I didn't have it. I'd like send him a cassette, you know? <laughs> and then yeah, they called me up and I was on playing that for Rockford, Illinois. I didn't know if I'd met any of the guys. I met all the guys in the band literally, I would say a half hour before we went out. Wow. That sounds very dead-esque. It's just, it's just crazy the way Grateful Dead music, and especially, and from that time, after, through that, after that, I met, you know, Vance and played with him, and played with tons of other Grateful Dead bands since then, and before then, too, but, and now I'm playing with uh, Unlimited Devotion, which is a band down here in Florida, because I just moved down here, and they've got gigs all over the place. It's, it's just amazing how, like, the Grateful Dead music, and it's such a huge influence on the culture, and just... And the whole the whole tribute band cover band is just insane. How every single city has one. Was Tim Walter uh, managing DSO when you were with him? I think he was at that point. Yeah. Yeah, Tim's a great guy who put on the All Good Music Festival for years in West Virginia. Right, He's an all good guy. Yeah. And lots of work at the uh, at the State Theater and the guy in the Maryland kind of concert industry for many years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he did everything at the uh, in DC and Baltimore, and he had two different markets. So he was running, you know, the jam band scene for for a long time. Yeah, I don't know what he's up to now. So, Greg, um, having talked to musicians about doing entire shows, the real challenge is there's always one or two obscure songs that you've got to learn just for that gig. So true. So true. Yeah, because like some, like most of the songs, like I really it's part of my DNA. I just know it. Not even thinking about it, you can play them. I mean, sometimes I, when I have to sing, I, that I have to kind of turn my brain back on. But like, yeah, and every this band that I'm playing with now, I'm in the devotion. It seems like every show there's at least one or two obscure songs that I have to go back and. What given it like? What are what are some of the more obscure ones that you know you you weren't expecting or that you've had to go back? Like for example, uh, well, new potato caboose. Like, oh, we're gonna play that one. Like, really? That's one I've never played before. Or. I'm trying to trying to think of some really obscure ones that they've thrown at me. Yeah, like the the eleven. William Tell. Well, I was just going to ask you about the eleven, and that makes a good bridge to where we want to go. But 
Yeah, that one I had never played before. The, the 11 is a tough tune. J-Rad plays it better than anybody I've ever heard, almost oh, better yeah. than the dead. But it's, it's a tough tune. I mean, it, it, I know the time signature is tough and that it, the, the lyrics are tough, and it's just – but it's a great – it's one of my favorite dead songs. The, the vocals are really tough, yeah. But, yeah, it's just – when you think about it, like when the, the whole 30-year career of The Grateful Dead, how many songs that are, are you know, are out? There's probably a 1,000 songs, right? And then if you want to cover their covers, now you're adding another thousand. There you go. Or the Jerry Band. Right. right. Jerry Band One Night, all of that stuff. There's just so much of it. That's, uh, that's yeah. just crazy. That's, yeah. That's, it, it, it is, it, it's like, yeah, it's like, you know, that uh, Blues Brothers thing. Like, I play both kinds of music, country and western. Right. Both kinds of music, Grateful Dead and Jerry. What, what if we ain't got no union cards? Right. That's right. <laughs> Rawhide never sounded better. So, Greg, I got to think that, you know, having also gotten to play with guys like Yorma, you know, who is it that you've actually um, played with that, you know, you're most in awe of kind of? Yeah, I played definitely with a lot of, a lot of my heroes. I got to say, it's really gratifying. Wish I'd put a lot of them still on my list. But, but I mean, one people I played with a lot were, um, you know, Charles Neville. I played after Vince died. I played with him a bit, but no, I did a lot of gigs with Charles, you know, for a few years. Henry Butler uh, from New Orleans. And, and, but yeah, I don't want to drop names, but yeah, but I'd drop names, it. please but, drop them. Does anyone, does anyone stand out as like, you know, wow, what an amazing experience and what an incredible musician. Yeah, it's definitely a highlight, man. This is a highlight of my musical life for sure. He was just, he had incredible knowledge, you know, just really gift for voicing and piano playing and singing. And yeah, and also he's a great writer too. He did a lot of his rhythms. So anyway, this was up, he's up there, you know, I named Charles and Henry, those are the you know, but you talk um, about Vince, and, and look, I'm not a musician, but I have to believe that if you're going to go into the Beatles songbook, Tomorrow Never Knows has to be one of the more trickier tunes, you know, to pull out and arrange to play, isn't it? And, you know, as opposed to like Love Me Do. and I would say I would have to disagree with that, actually. I would have to disagree. Okay. Quarterly, it's, quarterly, it's one song. It's one oh, chord, okay. really. Then, yeah. then there so, you go. It's a weird song. It's definitely hard to do it well and get the whole vibe, but. I wouldn't say it's the hardest Beatles okay. song. Well, good. I stand corrected. He did a bunch of weird, you know, like it's all too much. And then we keep coming back to the dead. And rain and Lucy in the sky. Lucy in the sky right now. That was him bringing that back. Yeah. And, and some of these songs that they'd been rumored forever that they were going to play. But they didn't, and then they finally started playing them. Yeah. Right? Day trip. What well, day tripper I heard in the early eighties, I guess. Day trip was 85 though. That was, that was pretty Vince. I thought they'd bring it back with Vince. I know he brought it back. Uh, Here comes sunshine. It was his I was there for that breakout in, uh, in, in Tempe, Arizona. What a, what a great night to open the first set. So, uh, so I know, Larry, I mean, you touched on the 11. I know you want to talk a little bit about the fact that we're coming up on, I think, the 52nd anniversary of the, uh, the Fillmore West run for a couple nights. I know those are some of your favorite shows. Before you get to the Fillmore, also, I think it was Vince's birthday a couple of days ago. It was. So happy birthday to Vinny. Yeah, right. that's Greg. That's actually why we chose um, Vince as our, our subject matter for today. Is I think it's what February twenty first. Was that right? Is his birthday or twenty third? I can't remember the exact date. Well, uh, happy happy belated uh, to to Vince Wilnick and you know everyone out there. Tip one back and you know one for your homies. Well, yes, happy birthday to Vinny. Thank you for uh, for reminding us. Yeah, but yeah, you're right, Rob. Uh, Fifty two years ago, twenty uh, seventh and twenty eighth of February, March first and second, four nights in a row. Um, you know, we talked about the uh, the Capitol Theater shows last week as really kind of being the breakout 
moment for like the the new Grateful Dead in the sense that you know they had all of a sudden all of this material of of you know of of what people would almost think of more as like real traditional types of songs with lyrics and choruses and and all of that kind of stuff. But before that, you know, the Grateful Dead became the Grateful Dead, in my opinion at least on the back of all, you know, the psychedelics that they did and the music that they brought to it, which was, you know, so new and, 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 and mind bending at the time. And, you know, we talked about the Avalon ballroom shows and we talked about some of the small theaters that they've played. And those, that was primarily the, the point in time when they were playing those. But, you know, for me, the, if you're going to have to say, you know, what was the peak moment of all of that? It was the four nights at the Fillmore in 69. Um, you know, and for four nights they came out, there wasn't a whole lot of diversity by God. They knew what they wanted to play. And they, they played that, uh, dark star, St. Stephen, 11 love light suite, all four nights in a row. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. but they mixed in a whole bunch of other stuff too. You know, uh, some really good cosmic Charlie's doing that rag every night, you know, and I love that how the sets were almost the same every other night. So, you know, the second set was always Dupree's diamond blues into mountains of the moon into the suite. Right, that was the Tom Constantin years, huh? Tom Constantin years, and then uh, uh, the first night the encore was Cosmic Charlie, but the third night, and, and uh, I heard um, uh, David Gann say that the third night is his Desert Island show, right? If you're going to get locked on a desert island with only one show that you could listen to, and he picks that one because he says, you know, the, the, the suite is, is as great as any, but he loves that one. They do a Hey Jude encore, the full Hey Jude with Pigpen singing it, he botches it up terribly. His voice is absolutely horrible, but it's wonderful to listen to. It's just, it's like almost magical that after putting on this amazing psychedelics and, and don't forget in 69, I mean, Hey Jude is practically right out of the box at that point. I mean, this is a brand new tune and they go after it and, um, and, and they have some fun with it, but it, it just, it, it, it brings the whole night down to a, a wonderful conclusion. And then the other two nights, you know, they, they closed out pretty standard with um, their alligator caution feedback. We bid you good night. Uh, but that had great jamming in it and great pig pen wraps and, uh, and great everything. But, but really, um, you know, this is really, I think the pinnacle of them at their, at their absolute best. And of course this provided almost all of the source material for live debt, except for uh what was it we said the 11 and the love light that they pulled out of the Avalon ballroom one night. But, uh, you know, the, the dead, uh, thought so much of it that they released the, their box set and, and I have the full one, the, the complete shows. And I told my wife, if the house is ever burning down, the first thing we have to do is run and grab this box before we go outside, you know, insurance company can pay me all they want, but you can't get any more of them. This is it limited number and they're done. Um, yeah, but for me, it, it just, it, it, it really, uh, uh, is what made me ultimately fall in love with the dead and, and how much I appreciate everything else they do because I see this psychedelic thread run through everything. And it's, uh, you know, it's great to go back and just take a look at it sometime and, you know, and think about how amazing it was to be at these shows in 1969 when this was brand new, you know, and Dark Star hadn't been played 2000 times. It was still, they were still figuring out how to play it and, and how to hook it up with St. Stephen and, you know, the William Tell bridge that they, you know, threw in there for a little while and everything. And it's just, it was them being creative and, and doing it in a great way. You know, Greg, as a, as a musician, you know, what are your thoughts on, on those shows in that period of time? I mean, yeah, the Primal Dead era was yeah, very brilliant. You know, there was genius, you know, some of those, some of the music they made during that time was arguably their peak. I would, they had a lot of different peaks, you know. But yeah, that was those are amazing 
I can't. I, I, the, the, the same era as the Capitol Theater show, basically. A couple of years yeah. earlier, I think. Yeah. Was it a couple of years earlier than that? Yeah. But the St. Stephen era, yeah, those, those recordings are. I, I, those were all from. I thought they were from. Uh, I didn't know that they were from uh, Fillmore. I thought that they were Avalon Ballroom, but I don't know. But um, that era just. Uh, it was, you know, the template for the whole psychedelic kind of experience for a lot of people, I think. Yeah. What was your favorite era to cover when you played with DSO? You know, if, if, if they came and said, we got a set we want to play. I would say, yeah, the Brent era. I would say the Brent era. See, so that's great. You know, you grow up a deadhead. The next thing you know, you're playing with DSO, and then you're playing with Vince. I mean, it, it really doesn't get much better than that. Yeah, it was, it was awesome. I really I enjoyed it. And I still enjoy it now. It's just, it's just, it's a blast. Thank God for the Grateful Dead and the music that they made and what they created. Well, and here's the way I look at it. We're sitting here today and we're talking about the 50th anniversary of these shows at the Fillmore. Amazing. It's amazing how old it is now. Yeah, it's scary. Yes. Right. I was born in, if you go back 50 years from when I was born, I mean, that's like the beginning of, you know, the 1900s and that that's ancient. This feels as fresh as it did. I mean, it's just amazing to think that it's 50 years old and it's still, you could play this anywhere and, you know, people who are fans of music are going to love it. It's, it's, so, it's so old that Jim wasn't even seeing shows yet. <laughs> but Larry, you were at those shows, you're saying? Oh, no, 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 I was not. No, I was uh, uh, eight years old at the time of those shows. Um, and No, no, that believe me, I wish I was at those shows. Um, but but they are shows that, you know, it took me a while, right? I, you know, you had to get into the dead. And I, I was, you know, in the early 1980s. And that was my dead music. And little by little, I went back and I started experimenting with the earlier stuff and finally found my way into the late 1960s and, and just discovered that, I mean, you know, to be able to put on a dark star for 25 minutes and, you know, just sit there and listen to them and do it differently every time. But, you know, just as mesmerizing each time is was a whole new way to listen to music. I love it. Yeah. It's just amazing the way the the, the way, people, at least from myself, the way I got in the grateful. Of course, I didn't like them. And then I, you know, I was 12 or 13. And then, you know, right. you from the closet and borrowed that record. And then it was always interesting, I guess. And that was one of the first concerts I went to in 1979, Nassau Coliseum. And then immediately I was like, yeah, that's, I get it now. So, and then after that, to just, you know, discover all the different, you know, eras of the music, you know, over the next several years. So you just missed Keith and you got the first, like, very early Brent. Very early, yeah, must have been one of the first, one of the first Because wow. Jim Marty's uh, with us. His first show was the Springfield Coliseum, the, uh, the 115.79, where he still actually caught, you know, Keith on there. And then, uh, and then his next show was a was a brand show a few months later. So right in, in April, wasn't it, Jim? Like right, one of his very first shows. I, I would highly recommend to anybody. You know, if if, if you really want to explore the Grateful Dead and really get to their guts, and I love that term, Primal Dead. I think that's a great way to describe it. Um, get your hands on some of this music. It's on YouTube. It's anywhere, but get your hands on it and just listen to it for a little while. And you know, and then if, if you if you read. Uh, um, Ken Kesey, uh, you know, and and Tom Wolf talking about the electric Kool-Aid acid test. That's this is exactly when this is happening, you know, and and, and all of that stuff is going on. And that reminds me, I just want to jump in here really quick. We had talked about uh, quotes, and I was looking through all of this stuff, and it got me into the uh, the original box set, So Many Roads, if you remember that one. And um, in the booklet, I was reading through, and there's this great Ken Kesey quote to Peter Shapiro, and he said, Kesey says. When you see a magic trick, there's a crack in your mind. You know it's a trick, but you can't figure it out. That crack lets in all the light. It opens up all the possibilities. 
when that little split thing happens, when the dead are playing and everybody in the audience goes, wow, did you see that? That is the moment. And kids will watch five hours of mediocre music to have that one click happen because that puts them in touch with the invisible. And I'm like, that's it in a nutshell, right? We'll go around and we'll track down 25 shows. Some of them are, ah, what? but you have to be there that one night when they break out, here comes sunshine, or they, they, they play a song a different way for the first time, and it just blows your mind. And that, that's, that's why we keep coming back. So, hey, Greg, we're going to talk um, about Canvas for a few seconds here, and we'd love to have you uh, join us on that as well, because I'm guessing you might know a thing or two about the Canvas uh, space as well. Big not ahead, I'm a lawyer, too, so I have a little bit of a... Yeah. Oh, welcome as to are, the club. As are me and Larry, so unfortunately, we're all, we're all attorneys that, that still like our Canvas. Um, or luckily. So, uh, but would you be willing to stick around for a couple minutes after and uh, and take a couple questions from Clubhouse if we can figure out how to make this work? Sure. Awesome. Wonderful. Thanks, man. Wonderful. So, Larry, what's happening in the world of Canvas this week? Oh, my goodness. Well, I know that uh, for our friends out on the East Coast, they're all excited because New Jersey's finally uh, pulled the trigger and uh, they're going to have an adult use program out there. Um, you know, as a Midwest guy, I'm, you know, look, I'm just happy for anybody. Um, but I know that uh, for folks who live in New Jersey, it's a big thing, not just because they're going to get legal weed, but because New York doesn't have it yet. So, so for once, for once, Jersey's ahead of New York is what you're saying? I, that's what it seems like to me. You know, we'll see how long it takes Cuomo to rebound on that one. But uh, good for New Jersey. You know, that's, uh, you know, hats off to them. And I think that, and we've talked about this, you know, that the East Coast hasn't really come of age in the cannabis world yet. And it really needs to, you know, I mean, as, as much as the, you know, we, we think of everything being centered in California and Colorado and up and down the West Coast in the Green Triangle. But, you know, who are we kidding? You know, New York is the center of the universe in this world. And, you know, it, it, but it's not just the center of the universe. It's been the home you know, Greenwich Village and all sorts of areas in New York have been the home to, you know, some of the coolest of the cool people and, you know, left wing and and all of this, you know, alternative lifestyle. And, and I, I say, you know, we've got to get New York and New Jersey and and all of these states on the legal side of things and with adult use programs. And, you know, once that happens, I think that we're, not that I don't think we're past well past the tipping point anyway, but yeah, I'm all for it. I, you know, the East Coast will carry the day for us. Yeah, you shoot. For example, I just came down to Florida and got my, um, you know, uh, registered. So now I got my card, and I'm just used to every. every I, I was paranoid every day of my life from the time I was 16 years old driving, and I still am. You know, it's because let's face it, you got to be careful. But I mean, if you get called a little bit of pot now, I, I can't. I can't imagine I'm going to get arrested. You know, with my with my pat, even if I'm not in Florida, I'm be surprised. So. It, yeah, it's a huge relief. Thank God. I never thought I'd live to see the day. Um, obviously, you're familiar with the irony that a lot of people I know who are in the, the industry when it's illegal, now they're kind of ruining the day because they're not making nearly as much money. So that's, I guess, at least they didn't have to bear the brunt of it. But um, yeah, for me personally, that's yeah, not having to worry about getting hung up on... on, on and thank God I never really did. Um, but yeah, you, you hear stories about people. And I get a lot of different musicians. Up until a couple of years ago, every year, a couple of musicians would call me. I got popped out on, you know, coming back. Busted down on Bourbon Street. Just a, yeah, and I used to play all you know, these little rinky-dink festivals, you know. I got a lot. Yeah, man, I, I was like, it great stories with Vince, too, about getting shaken down like cops with the pot. And uh, look, here's Scott Guberman, you know, you know Scott is, he's a keyboard player. But it's, yeah, yeah, some very funny stories about what we're getting. 
it wasn't lucky for him because he actually ended up getting that thing arrested. But um, yeah, the cops would just like stay outside these festivals and just. Yeah, I think it's um, I think it's funny because I think back to you know my time on tour and I think about all the uh, the people these days that discuss you know the, the cannabis industry and how it's evolved, and uh, you know I think back to on tour for years you used to see those checkpoints that would say you know um, uh, drug checkpoint ahead. And then the cops would just sit on the exit ramp, and anyone that pulled off on that exit, they just pop right there. And, you know, anyone that wasn't you know smart enough to realize that was just a setup, and just don't pull over on the next exit ramp. You're probably gonna get through fine. But I remember, like you know, it was, it was basically any major highway between venues. You knew that it was uh you know like zebras crossing the African River, waiting for the crocodiles to get you. That you had you know 600 miles between cities of going. I hope I don't get popped between here and there, depending on what you were you know riding dirty with. Well, so. <laughs> And I'll tell you, Rob, you're absolutely right. And for us, I think one of the scariest places to ever have to drive from post-show was out of Alpine Valley. You know, the Wisconsin cops, I mean, they, they were notorious, you know, on the way in. But funny, too, they'd always have a guy in a van right at, like, where had, when you got off the highway where you had to go and then pull up on a little country road and make a left turn at a stop sign. And they had a guy sitting there in a VW bus wearing a tie-dye shirt and a headband. And he'd be looking into cars to radio ahead. But you could always figure out who he was because he had on black socks and wingtips. Yeah, exactly. You know, it, 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 even they didn't even know how to look cool when they tried. And but they would just. And then after the show, you had to drive, you know, 40, 40 45 minutes in Wisconsin before you got to the Illinois border, and that was always, you know, not anywhere you wanted to be after a show. Well, we don't have time today, but sometime I'll tell you the story of uh, Saratoga Springs uh, for a fish concert. Uh, when the New oh. York State Police had a DUI checkpoint going into the show at two in the afternoon, yeah, my son and I called that the Father's Day massacre because it was Father's Day. Oh God, that's no fun. When you got quotas to fill, you know you're going to have people at those gatherings that'll help you fill quotas. So, but that's you know that's why we're pushing this other stuff, and that's why it's good that New Jersey's taking the lead uh, for the East Coast and you know helping them push it through. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the good news we were talking about before the show, too, Larry, is we also saw some movement this week out of North Dakota and out of South Carolina, and those are two of the more conservative states in the union. South Carolina just did a poll of all its people, and there's a five-to-one in favor of medicinal cannabis in, in South Carolina. So at this point, the, the state legislature has to know it's a foregone conclusion that even in very conservative South Carolina, it's going to pass overwhelmingly. So, you know, does that state legislature try to get ahead of the question and put something, you know, through the House rather than waiting for a ballot initiative? Hey, you know, I'd like... I'd like to think that on marijuana, even uh, Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley could get along with people, right? I mean, it, it's it's such a uh, that's it's a such stretch, a, man. Well, it, but it's such a common thing because look what you just said. You know, if yeah. come on, South. Let's take North Dakota. You know, what 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 liberal Democrat ever has a chance of going in there and even you know getting a measurable percentage of votes? And yet, on something like marijuana, these guys are voting for it. Not close, overwhelmingly. Yeah. It, it's it's just got unquestioned support everywhere, which means that everybody on both sides of the aisle like it and use it. And I think that's great. You know, it, 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 we talk all the time. It, it's, a, it's a great common denominator for people. And, you know, I'm happy to see that North Dakota is doing that. And I'm happy to see that South Carolina is doing that. I had a good buddy who got busted down in South Carolina a number of years ago. You know, some guy came up to him and said, you want to buy some marijuana and opened up a, a bag. And while my buddy was standing there looking at it, the cops came up from behind and busted him and the other guy. You know, and all of a sudden I get a call from my buddy, hey, can you send me down some bail money? It was the stupidest thing in the world, you know. Now you can walk into a dispensary and look all you want. You don't have to worry about it. Yep. So I see we're coming to the end of our time slot. 
Um, Rob, you want to talk to us about uh, Clubhouse and what we have going there? Sure. So as I announced in the beginning of the show, I think what we're going to try to do, and again, this is fully experimental, so whether or not it works as well as we thought uh, would like, so far so good. We have an audience right now in Clubhouse, not too many people, but we've got a you know, handful of people that are listening in. What we're going to try to do is open this up, um, and I'm going to switch off my, my microphone on the computer and move over to Clubhouse, and hopefully it gets piped in through, uh, through our producer, Dan Hummiston's um, uh, home studio, and we'll be able to take some questions from the audience. So you guys will be hearing this through Dan's studio, and I'll be uh, you know sitting on a different feed. Uh, before I do, you know, I definitely want to say thank you to Greg for for telling us some great stories about the dead, and also and for hey, the dead-related uh, actions being part of all of his own work as a musician. I'd also um, like to say that you know next week I think we've got some some cool stuff that we're doing. I think Mardi Gras is going to be a theme that we're going to be looking into, and so you know, the the Chinese New Year Mardi Gras years that the Grateful Dead have done and some of the really fun stuff we've seen there. So we've got another great guest coming to join us uh, for next week. So please, you know, we're going to try try this clubhouse thing again, see if we can't keep doing live simulcasts, if we can make this work. So um, we are not going to say goodbye right now. We are going to transition over and see if we can't take some questions. And please stick around and join us. If anyone has any questions for Greg Corner or for Larry Mishkin and Jim Marty, you know, please, uh, please let us know. So I'm going to bring Raymond. Why don't you come up on stage? And, uh, and let us know if um, you have a question for any of the panelists uh, discussing Grateful Dead and Cannabis right now. How you doing, Raymond? What's going on, man? Oh, I was just, like I said, man, I, I had actually meant to take my hand down. I didn't really have a question. I just really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for doing the simulcast. And uh, when I forgot it was a simulcast of a podcast and I raised my hand initially was because he talked about a limited devotion. And I used to live in Florida. It was before a limited devotion came on the scene when Crazy Fingers and Uncle John's band were the two big games in town. But uh, I was curious if, Greg, if you ever played with Jim Weiss, man, that, he, that is one of my good, good homies. That's family. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I know. I know, Jim. Yeah. I just played a game with him a couple of weeks ago. He's amazing. Yeah. Great keyboard player. Yeah, I think. Yeah. I mean, I know he plays with them on and off. He's a good buddy of mine. He's come out to Cali and hung out a couple of times. Oh, cool. Yeah. He's awesome. He's, he's great. And he's got a he's band. He plays in um, uh, the Heavy Pets. Oh, yeah, dude. Yeah. Big, big fan. Uh, they got a they got a rhythm section. They got a Heavy Pets rhythm section. So him, Tony and Jamie, it's just called Lather Up. No vocals. All uh, very psychedelic jazz uh amazing yeah but i don't think the heavy patch that's the thing like the grateful dead cover band thing that, like the heavy patch were probably one of the biggest original bands in florida with jim's band oh yeah i don't think they're playing now because of covid and whatnot but the grateful dead cover band still still happening all over the place oh yeah they used to play with crazy fingers in south florida quite frequently and uh yeah i used to work at spirit of swanee music park so i know a lot of these florida cats quite well yeah well, with that, uh, you know, I think that's all we probably have today for uh, for the Deadhead Canvas show. So I'll sign off and say again, thank you to our guest, Greg Corner. And as always, you know, Larry and Jim, it's a pleasure. And uh, we'll see you guys next week to talk uh, more weed and more, more Grateful Dead. Excellent. Thank you, guys. It's always a pleasure, Greg. Thank you very much. Great to meet you guys. For sure. And to all of our uh, listeners out there, we hope you enjoyed the show. We'll look forward to listening to you again next week. Stay safe, be careful, and enjoy your cannabis responsibly. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey everyone, it's Ryan from the Cannabis Connoisseur Podcast. If you're looking for ways to utilize cannabis to keep you healthy, strong, and sharp, come join us every Wednesday where we dive into the best ways to use cannabis to optimize your life. Topics include cannabis and athletics, cannabis for productivity, cannabis for anxiety, cannabis for a healthy immune system, and so much more. If you're a curious connoisseur, this show is for you. So please head over to our page and we're looking forward to seeing you this week. Bye.